From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in. To EWTN's open line, Father Wade Benezes is in the house. He's in the starting blocks, ready to go in Auburn, Kentucky at the Fathers of Mercy General at House. If you'd like to speak to Father Wade, yes, they do have technology in Kentucky. They have phones. They have all <laughs> kinds of stuff in Kentucky. If you want to talk to Father Wade, give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Now, the whole Commonwealth is probably going to call and yell at me. Um, I love Kentucky. Beautiful state. Lovely place. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our hostess, he is every Tuesday, the aforementioned Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. And no, no hard feelings there, what you said about Kentucky. And, you know, <laughs> I, got, I got my Florida jokes up my sleeve, too. I'm you know, not so. from Florida. I, well, okay, okay. Well, well you my, kind of, my, yeah. wife, my wife has a condo in Florida. <laughs> That's kind of okay. a cop out, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got to bring this whole conversation up at my, ne- my next marriage retreat. But it has yeah. to be a marriage retreat that I give with you and Johnette. See, that's what. That's what I yeah, we, that we both show up for. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, speaking of me needing to go to confession. <laughs> yeah, right. Very good. Yes, this springboard topic today goes hand-in-hand hand with next week's springboard topic. So today we have the three acts of the penitent for confession. And guess what next week's is titled? The Reality of Sin and conversion. Why these two weeks, these two topics, this week and next week? Because we are fastly approaching Lent. Now, the three acts of the penitent for confession and the reality of sin and conversion, exclamation point, uh, are not only themes that should be prominent in our lives only during Lent, but Lent surely brings them to the fore, right? Lent brings them right to the front of our lives to give them a greater focus and whatnot. So I want to talk about the three acts of the penitent for confession. For the penitent, Jack, there are four aspects of a proper confession. The examination of conscience followed by what are traditionally known as the three acts of the penitent, which have to do with the sacrament of penance itself. Regarding first of the four, 
the examination of conscience, all seven sacraments require some kind of remote or proximate preparation before they can be received, right? Well, for the sacrament of penance, that proximate preparation is, per se, the examination of conscience, as the Catechism tells us in number 1454. As each sacrament is truly a meeting with the Lord Jesus, we must ready ourselves for that meeting with him. In the case of confession, by looking deeply and honestly at our lives so that we come to God with as full as understanding of the state of our souls as possible and ask for pardon. And the examination of conscience for those who go faithfully and regularly to confession, say once a month, should really be no longer than four or five minutes, right? With a good written form of the examination of conscience, which we Fathers of Mercy have one at our website, fathersofmercy.com. St. Augustine, discussing the sin of King David with Bathsheba, relates that asking for pardon for sin is tied to intellectual acknowledgement of sin. St. Augustine says, I acknowledge my transgression, as David says, if I admit my fault then... You will pardon it, St. Augustine says. Let us never assume that if we live good lives, we will be without sin. Rather, our lives should be praised only when we continue to beg for pardon. How about that? Our lives should only be praised when we continue to beg for pardon. The three acts of the penitent now are contrition, confession, and satisfaction. First, regarding contrition, being contrite, a distinction needs to be made between perfect contrition and imperfect contrition, also called attrition. Perfect contrition is when you are sorry for your sins most of all because they have offended God, who is all good and deserving of all of your love, as one version of the act of contrition states so beautifully. But if you are sorry for your sins and detest them only for human motives, for example, because you dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, or because you've been asked to be a godparent, and the rules require you to be in good standing with the church, and that's the only reason why you go to confession, this would be imperfect contrition, called attrition, right? The great news, however, is that Holy Mother Church considers imperfect contrition, that is, a fear of divine justice, even if mixed with human motives, to be a sufficient basis for sorrow for the sacrament of confession. St. Peter Damien explains this distinction well when he says, where there is justice as well as fear, adversity will surely test the spirit. But it is not the torment of a slave, rather it is the discipline of a child by its parent. In other words, we have a filial fear towards God, not a servile fear towards God. Servile fear, that latter one, is afraid of punishment, not filial fear. Filial fear is afraid of offending precisely because he knows the parent loves him. Second, we have to confess our sins. So this is the second point of the three acts of the penitent. First we had contrition, now we have confession. Confession of one's sins should be done in a simple, concise manner, that is, maintaining the integrity of the confession, yet without going into great and graphic detail about each sin. The following important points were discussed in our first chapter of Overcoming the Evil Within, my book, titled, surtitled, uh, The Reality of Sin and the Transforming Power of God's Grace and Mercy. But because they are so important to making a good, worthy, and reverent confession, they're worth mentioning here again. Mortal sins must be confessed in their kind and approximate number. Any aggravating circumstances that make a mortal sin objectively graver should be included, but still mentioned simply, again, without a lot of great or graphic detail. And remember that venial sins, unlike mortal sins, can be forgiven outside the sacrament of confession, for example, by praying a fervent act of contrition or by receiving Holy Communion devoutly. 
recall that regarding confession and forgiveness, God is always our primary mover, whether or not we are in a state of grace. When we go to confession or make an act of contrition, we are responding to this movement of God's grace in our hearts. And remember, too, that confessing venial sins, though not absolutely required for confession, is strongly recommended by Holy Mother Church because it helps us fight against evil tendencies toward more grave sins and form our consciences properly on a daily basis. Deliberate and unrepented venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. That's right out of the Catechism, number 1863. Deliberate and unrepented venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. Number 1863, again, of the Universal Catechism. God's sanctifying grace, Jack, comes through the sacraments. So if we do bring our venial sins to confession, we can be certain that grace is increased in us by that very fact. And the third and final act of the penitent that leads to a complete and integral confession is called satisfaction, or the proper completion of the assigned penance that the priest gives you. In other words, you satisfy the penance the priest gives you. This is why it's called satisfaction. Now, keep in mind that the penitent does have the right, if the priest gives a penance that is simply not realistic for his or her state in life, say a homeschooling mother of seven is told by her confessor to give several hours of service each week to a soup kitchen, uh, to ask respectfully for an alternative penance would be okay on that homeschooling mother's part. She has her own soup kitchen at her house, for crying out loud, you know? So uh, she, in that case, she could say, Father, thank you for that penance, but, you know, being a homeschooling mom of seven, that is just not a realistic penance for me. May I ask for a, a, another penance? And, and the penitent has a right to say that. At the same time, however, the priest has a right to give a penance that is commensurate with the gravity of the sins just confessed by the penitent. In fact, the priest is duty-bound to do that. In most cases, the confessor will give a reasonable and specific penance so that the penitent can be assured that he or she has satisfied it fully. So there you go, Jack. The three acts of the penitent, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, and they are preceded by the examination of conscience. Why? Because each of the seven sacraments requires at least remote or proximate preparation before they can be received. And for confession, the sacrament of penance, uh, the proximate preparation is the examina examination of conscience, you know, just taking four or five minutes, if even that, and combing through a, a good series of questions that comb through the Ten Commandments. Again, we Fathers of Mercy have ours at fathersofmercy.com. So we prepare, really, this Tuesday, today, as Lent quickly approaches us, today's springboard topic, the three acts of the penitent for confession, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, preceded again by the examination of conscience. And next week is the reality of sin and conversion. And then that third Tuesday from now, we will be ready to delve fully into Lent. Give us a call this hour. Give us a witness how confession has transformed your life. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 
271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Journey deeper into your understanding of the Eucharistic mystery and understand the Eucharistic story of God's love for us from the Old Testament to the institution of the Eucharist. You can do this by downloading the free ebook, The Twelve Stations of the Most Holy Eucharist, at EWTN.com/slash Catholicism. This is phenomenal. Uh, it is it is uh, uh, in monument form at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament. Um, you walk a path just like you would walk the Stations of the Cross. You walk the way of the Eucharist. Uh, it's so inspiring. I think every non-Catholic Christian should be forced to walk that way of the Eucharist. Uh, it would certainly <laughs> open their eyes. And then if you actually look down on the path from above, it, it forms the, the shape of a giant monster. It's just spectacular. I'm sure Father Wade would back me up on that. Absolutely. Um, uh, Father, the... Uh, the springboard topic that you just uh, shared with us um, is the topic of a new blog post uh, on your website, huh? Yes. Uh, if our listeners want to go to fathersofmercy.com and at the homepage there, which is the first thing to come up on your screen when you go to fathersofmercy.com, in the upper right-hand corner is a magnifying glass icon. Click on that, and a search bar appears in the middle of the screen after clicking on that magnifying glass. And on that search bar, simply type the word confession. Or type three acts of the penitent, or three acts. Regardless, any of those options will work. Again, even the simple word confession. It comes up immediately as my latest blog titled The Three Acts of the Penitent for Confession. And they could read more leisurely uh, at their pace uh, everything I share during the springboard topic to better familiarize themselves with the traditional three acts of the penitent to make what's called a good, holy, reverent, and integral confession. That is contrition, confession, and satisfaction with contrition, the difference between perfect contrition and imperfect contrition, also called attrition. Confession regarding the fact that even with mortal sins, we don't have to go into great or graphic detail. That's not what confession's about. We do need to give kind and approximate number and any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. But none of that needs to be given in great or graphic detail. The greater graphic detail is more something for spiritual direction, right? And then venial sins, technically speaking, although it's very noble and a good practice to take them to monthly confession, you technically don't have to. Uh, but if the truth be known again, for one who makes a faithful monthly confession, chances are they're only going to have venial sins to confess. Why? It's precisely the practice of a monthly confession per se that's keeping them away from mortal sin, right? And then satisfaction simply means satisfying the penance, the priest gave you. And if the priest confessor gives you a penance that is just not realistic, you have the, uh, the right as a penitent to very charitably say, Father, thank you for that penance, but I, I think it would be difficult for me to carry out because of A, B, or C. May I have another one that's more realistic that I can carry out uh, fairly soon? And he'll abide by that. So uh, again, go to fathersofmercy.com, click on the magnifying glass icon in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage, a search bar comes up in the middle of the screen once you do that, and just type in the word confession or the phrase three acts or three acts of the penitent, and read that springboard topic from today's show. First up today is Veronica, a first-time caller in Council Bluffs, Iowa, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Hi, Veronica. You're on with Father Wade. Hi. I, I have Hi, a Ver question about the... Okay. I have a question about the Mass. 
Um, in the um, consecration, uh, not the consecration, but the Eucharistic prayer, um, there is an, uh, a comment, two phrases. One says we're praying for the people who, uh, I think, die in the grace of the Lord, and then right after it follows, we're praying for people who are asleep. Um with the hope of the resurrection, or something to that effect. I, since you say yeah. mass every day, I'm, thinking, I'm hoping you can pull that up. Sure. Um, to me, they both allude to death, to, and so I don't understand why there's a repetition. Well, the difference is those who have died in your mercy refers to those who indeed died in a state of grace. And then the prior one, praying for our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection, we don't necessarily know whether they died in the state of grace or not, and we leave that to the mercy of God as well. So the full phrase that you're talking about does indeed come from Eucharistic Prayer 2, and it's these words, and I quote, Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection. That's everyone who's died, who has knowledge of Christ and all that he did for us in carrying out the Paschal Mystery, that four-event event of his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, and those who have hope in that reality of the four-event event of the Paschal Mystery, and those who have died in your mercy, meaning not in a state of purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin, right? Where the first group doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, they could have died in a state of mortal sin, but hopefully a, a mitigating circumstance makes the object of mortal sin uh, subjectively venial. Like if someone was forced to have an abortion and did not do it of their own will, because remember for a mortal sin, you need gra- it needs to be grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will. So again, let me reread it. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep, meaning they've died, their earthly death, Remember our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection and all those who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face. We, we want to welcome both groups into the light of God's face. So it's taking in both camps. Those, in both camps, Christ has been revealed to both camps. But some may have not died in his mercy. We leave that to him those who did not, and we pray for those who have died in his mercy, because they're interceding for us as well. Uh, That second phrase, and all those who have died in your mercy, whether they're purgative or triumphant members of the church, purgative meaning in purgatory, uh, triumphant meaning members in heaven, uh, this is, these are two of the three states of the church. The third state is the members of the church militant, those of us still living on earth. That latter phrase, and all those who have died in your mercy, could be members of the church triumphant. They could be members of the church penitent or, or suffering, still fulfilling their temporal punishment before they can enter heaven. Either way, they died in God's mercy, right? Because the holy souls in purgatory even are assured of heaven. This is why purgatory is included in the discussion of heaven when we talk traditionally about the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Notice it's not the five last things, death, judgment, heaven, purgatory, and hell. No, purgatory is not one of the four last things making it five last things. No. Why? Because purgatory's doctrine is included under heaven's doctrine, because the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. Does that help you out? Definitely. I appreciate it, and I'll pass this on to my friend also. 
Beautiful. And they say, the experts, when I say they, I mean the liturgical experts, that uh, Eucharistic prayer too is most likely the eldest of the four. Uh, each one has its own real beauty about it. Uh, there's different reasons why I love all four of the primary Eucharistic prayers, but I just thought I'd throw that out there, that the Eucharistic prayer too is known to probably be the oldest, according to litur- liturgical scholars. Thank you so much for a great call, Veronica. We really appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. We head now to the desert. Ida is a first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130 in Arizona. Ida, you're on with Father Wade Menezes. Hello, Father. We used to come out here to Bullhead City, Arizona. I don't know if you recall that. <laughs> Oh, yes, I've been to Bullhead City twice, I think, and other Fathers of Mercy have been there more uh, other times as well, meaning many Fathers of Mercy parish missions. So you've gone to some of those in the past, I presume? Absolutely. I even know that, remember, that you like coffee ice cream. <laughs> oh, yes. In fact, I give up coffee for Lent, and I give up ice cream for Lent, but I do not give up coffee ice cream for Lent, okay? <laughs> Let's get that straight right now, Okay. <laughs> Well, Father, I have a comment, I, you know, and I don't know if this will help others, is that um, through the mercy of God and through confession, I had a habitual, unfortunately, mortal sin, and, and, um, and the more that I came to confession, it seemed to help me, you know, weaken that. Now I just have a struggle with habitual venial sin, but through the mercy of God, confession you know, is such a blessing from my Lord. Well, beautiful, Ida. What a great witness call. And you're right, you know, confessing even habitual mortal sin, little by little, predisposes us to overcome it completely. Because with each passing and succeeding confession of that habitual mortal sin, we want to strive more and more to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful, as opposed to keep pursuing the opposite of those three, Uh, you know, the bad, the false, and the ugly. You know, instead we want to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful. And your witness phone call to so many of our listeners live right now is proof of that. And, you know, I don't mean to sound like a doomsayer here, but it's the truth. Chances are we'll always have some venial sin. We're not immaculately conceived like our Blessed Mother was, right? But here's the thing. Uh, while, While venial sin might constrict a life of virtue with particular virtues that we're striving for, Mortal sin severs those virtues because it cuts off sanctifying grace, and it it severs our relationship supernaturally with both God and others. Uh, Venial sin doesn't do that. Venial sin will just constrict the grace and thus constrict our relationship supernaturally with God and others. So we don't want any sin that is true, venial nor mortal, but we especially don't want the mortal sin. And and your, your call really, really stresses that beautifully and also stresses how it is possible to overcome it. So, Ida, thank you so, so much. Uh, ask your pastor if he wants another Father of Mercy Parish mission, if it's still the same pastor there. I forget his name. His name escapes me right now. But even if it's a new pastor that, that maybe has replaced him, uh, ask him to go to fathersofmercy.com and schedule possibly a parish mission with us. We'd really appreciate that. God bless you now. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Michael's watching on YouTube, and he wants to know, does one have to confess venial sins with aggravated circumstances? No, because they're just venial to begin with. Uh, You might have a venial sin that has some point to it that makes it 
um, maybe a little more serious than another venial sin, but the fact that they're both still venial, where there either wasn't grave matter, there either wasn't fullness of knowledge that it was grave matter, or it wasn't done with fullness of will, uh, the three things needed together to make a mortal sin, because one or two of those three things are missing in either case of the venial sin, even if one venial sin is maybe a little more graver than the other, say, um, uh, uh, stealing a pack of gum uh, versus stealing uh, a, a stereo or something, uh, well, the, the latter example could also be mortal, because it, depending on the, on the price tag of it all, and you know, it's grave matter more than a piece of gum. But let's say you have two, two venial matters. One might be a little bit more objective more grave, but the fact that they're both venial, you do not need to confess the aggravating circumstance. Uh, only with mortal sin do we need to do that. Great question. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Father Alexander is also watching us on YouTube, and he says, Right before communion, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Does that forgive our venial sins? Actually, the, 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 the mind of the Church in this, regarding the sacred liturgy is that the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass, rids us of our venial sins, and that the Ecce Agnus Dei response by the people, the Ece Agnus Dei is, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world, blessed are those called the Supper of the Lamb. The people's response to that, which is what our inquirer just quoted for us, um, it, uh, it, it is a reiteration of what we hope happened indeed at the penitential rite. That's the mind of the Church and the Sacred Liturgy. Linda is a first-time caller in Olympia, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Linda, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. How are you today? Doing great, Linda. Thank you. Um, I have a question, and my question is this. Now, I know that St. Joseph is the saint of all workers. Who is the saint of people getting ready to retire, or who are... Just retired. Is there a saint for that? Yes, specifically there are three under that very flag or that very banner of retirees per se. We have a saint, um, Jean Yugan. She's the foundress of the Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, which is a religious order that has many, many uh, houses here in the United States that are retirement homes. The sisters wear a beautiful white habit. Um, they're nursing sisters, they're hospitaler sisters, and their foundress is St. Jean Yugan, J-U-G-A-N. Jean is J-E-A-N-N-E. We also have St. Gumanus, who is celebrated not only by the Catholic Church, but also by the, some of the Eastern Rites, some of the 23 Eastern Rites, and also the Orthodox Church that is not in union with Rome. Uh, he's an early church saint. And also St. Anthony of Lisbon, I, I will say it again, St. Anthony of Lisbon, although most people know him as St. Anthony of Padua. Of course, I'm full-blooded Portuguese, so I'm going to say 
St. Anthony of Lisbon, right? Because that's where he was born, is in Lisbon, Portugal. Portugal. He died in, in Padua, uh, Italy. So there's a, there's a healthy competition between the Italians and the, uh, and the Portuguese on who can claim him. But uh, I'll say St. Anthony of Padua or St. Anthony of Lisbon in my preaching. But he's also another one who is specifically listed as a patron saint of retirees. So there you have, you have uh, uh, really uh, three saints from three different times uh, of, of the historical clock there in the 2,000-year history of the Church, and that's a great thing. Does that help you out there? Yes, that does help me out. That's great. Well, Great. Are you getting ready to retire? Yes, I am. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Well, good. Congratulations to you. And yes, again, St. Jean Ugon, St. Gumanus, and St. Anthony of Padua slash Lisbon. Okay, we'll remember that. <laughs> God bless you, Linda. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Blanca is in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio, another first-time caller. Blanca, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Hi, Blanca. Thank you for your call today. Hi. Thank you. Oh, we love you so much over here in San Antonio. <laughs> My it's, a great, it's, it's a great place to preach. I've been to San Antonio many times, and I love going there. You all have great barbecue, and I have an aunt and uncle that live in Bernie, right outside of San Antonio, so it's always oh, good wow. to see them as, at the same time. Well, it's nice to hear you. Um, I have two questions. One, uh, first one is, can why is it a body cremated? Can you cremate a body? Can a body be cremated? And second, uh, can the soul be penetrated by fire? Great question. So uh, to answer the first question, yes, uh, at the time of burial or for burial, a full body may be cremated according to the Church's teaching. However, the Ashes cannot be scattered. They must be interred, either in the ground or in an above-ground columbarium, which you usually see made with beautiful marble walls with these big slabs of marble that have the bunch of little square doors, and then the urn goes in one of those little squares. So it, it requires internment of the cremains inside the urn. We cannot scatter them. So that answers that question. The, the soul is immaterial. So if it does feel a type of purification, say by way of fire, which is the traditional way that sacred scripture talks about purgatory, it's a sentient pain apart from bodily matter, because the soul is not material. But remember, the soul has the four primary faculties of intellect, will, memory, and imagination. So in those last two, memory and imagination, the soul could have some reflective reality while it was still in the body before death of what pain or any type of purgation really felt like while still living on earth. And having that memory and imagination, that is possibly what the soul could be experiencing in its purg purgative state in purgatory. The church doesn't answer that definitively. All we know is that there is a temporal punishment the soul is sentient to it, or the soul senses it, but how it exactly is carried out, we don't know those particulars. It's not important for salvation. What's important for salvation and what's de fide of the faith is to know that there is such a thing as purgation if at the time of earthly death one has not fulfilled their temporal punishment, 
punishment yet for their already forgiven mortal and venial sins. That's why it's important to want to embrace your suffering. It's now while still living on earth. It's important to seek uh, the plenary and partial indulgences. It's important to want to share in the cross of Jesus Christ now while still living so that we can atone now while still living on earth. Uh, for our uh, temporal punishment due to our already forgiven mortal and venial sins. Thus, the reason why going to confession faithfully, hopefully at least once a month, right? Um, but, but to answer your question, can, can the soul feel the fire, or can the fire penetrate the soul? Not in a material sense, no, but the soul could have some type of uh, imaginative, meaning of the imagination, um, uh, or some memorial Mem- or memorable meaning of the memory, uh, reality of what that that heat or or fire feels like from when it was still living on Earth, uh, united to the body. That could be some type of the that could be some part of the purgation. We just don't know. Does that help you out? Yes, thank you. Great, Blanca. Thank you so much. You talk to your pastor about having a Fathers of Mercy Parish mission there <laughs> in San Antonio, Texas. We'd love to go back there to that great area. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Barbara is another first-time caller in Anderson, South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Barbara, you're on with Father Wade. How you doing, Paul? It's Steve, actually, a husband. Okay, very she good. Just want- yeah, she just wanted to know where in the Bible it discusses about purgatory. Oh, that's a great question. Great question. And Catholic.com, which is Catholic Answers out of San Diego, has a wonderful, wonderful section at its website specifically on this very question that really expounds on the scriptural passages per se that your wife is seeking. So, for example, the fact that purification is necessary for heaven before one can enter heaven, that one has to be all pure and all purified and all in a perfect state. We have Hebrews 12, 14, Revelation 21, 27. The fact that there is an intermediate state of purification, if the person is not yet totally purified at the time of their earthly death, we have Matthew 5, 26 from our Lord himself implying that, and Luke 12, 58 through 59. The fact that there are different degrees of expiation of sins, we have Luke 12, 47 through 48, another parable of Jesus there. The fact that the the deceased, the dead, can be aided by our prayers would be from the Old Testament, 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 45. And that after uh, that purification, the fact that the one who died in a state of God's mercy but yet not perfectly purified, after that purification, indeed going to heaven, we have 1 Corinthians 3.15, right? Uh, in, in 1 Peter uh, 3.19, St. Peter tells us that after Jesus died and before his resurrection, he also went to preach to the spirits in prison, that is, the souls of the just. Now, what or where could this be? It couldn't be hell, right? Because the spirits in hell are eternally damned. They have no hope of heaven. Uh, no amount of preaching would ever help them. And it couldn't be heaven, uh, because the gates of heaven had not yet been opened prior to Jesus's going to heaven himself. So while not necessarily purgatory, this point does point, if you will, 
to another place, an intermediate place. So that's another scripture passage that the church uses to talk about, quote-unquote, an intermediate place. Um, And so the Catechism tells us that the the tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of scripture, speaks of the cleansing fire. It cites, again, 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 1 Peter 1.7. And and Revelation 21.27, which I've already mentioned, um, says that nothing unclean shall enter heaven, quote-unquote. And so purgatory is that process. Process, right? The, the refining fire that cleanses us so that we may enter into union with an all-holy God. And let your wife Barbara know, too, that there's a beautiful section in the Universal Catechism, uh, on, in the section on, on, on the reality of sin and the reality of conversion, is where purgatory is discussed just before the section on heaven, when the Catechism treats the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. I'd also like to recommend that maybe your wife might want for her Lenten reading a very quick read. It's only 110 pages. I'm holding it up now to the screen. For those of you watching live on our YouTube uh, feed live or our EW10 Radio Facebook live, uh, my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, I talk about purgatory in my chapter on heaven, because again, purgatory is part of the doctrine on heaven. The holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. So she might want to get that for her Lenten reading, her 40-day Lenten reading. It's a quick read. It's only about 110 pages. And I quote profusely from Scripture, from the lives of the saints, and also from different church documents like the Vatican II documents. So there you have it. If if you didn't write those down while I was saying them, go back and listen to the podcast, and uh, you can write them down as you re-listen to the podcast, which should be up within the hour after today's live show. Thank you so much, and tell your wife Barbara hello for us. There you go, Michael McCall, producer man. Get editing. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Patricia is on Long Island in New York watching on YouTube today. Patricia, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father. How are you? I'm doing great, Patricia. Thank you so much. How's Long Island? When I say long, I always get the G in there. Long Island, right? Long Island, yes, good. It's great. <laughs> uh, I used to, <laughs> come and have some coffee. We'll go to New York. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> there you go. Are you familiar with Our Lady of the Island? No, I'm not. I don't know it... it's, really it's the fathers of, um, oh my gosh, they're not the Passion Fathers. The Redemptorists? the whole... No, it might be the Passion Father. There's a Father, okay. Frank Pizzarelli, who, who does a lot of stuff with um He has a home for for guys that have um, substance abuse. It's okay. women, too, but it started out mostly. And then it, they, it's the same. I believe they're passionate, Passion okay. Fathers. Anyway, my question to you is, um, I'm from a large Catholic family. Parents are deceased now. I was a nurse my whole life. And um, I was third, so there were two brothers... One died early. He died before my parents. And then um, then there's two, then another brother, then myself, two other brothers and a sister. I'm estranged from all of them except one brother. Well, the one in heaven I'm not estranged from. I talk to him all the time. But I just made a judgment. I know we're not supposed to judge, but I made a judgment that they all stopped going to church after the parents died, it seemed everything came out of the closet. Who hated who? Who didn't want to do this? And I was, as a nurse, I traveled around a lot. I had to go to different places to learn things. My last 25 years was operating room, so I moved around the country to learn things. And um, 
my parents would always, they never asked me for anything, but I just, I just knew that they needed. I knew their income. I knew, you know, they were retired now as they got older and everything, the cost of living goes up, but the people right under their nose did not help them. So when they passed away, all the stuff came out of the closet and I just put my foot down and I said, I can't. I can't be around you people. I said, you have okay. the devil in you. I see in your eyes. And I just want to know when I, when I go to heaven and I'm in front of Jesus and because I made the judgment and he's the one that made the final judgment, what happens to me then if I'm still okay. strained from all of them except one brother? Yeah, basically what you're asking, I believe, is um, it, it, at what point is it a grave sin to not be in communication with family? Right. Well, the question there is this other question. Uh, what does your baptism call you to do? What does your confirmation call you to do? What does your regular reception of confession and Holy Communion call you to do? There's two great quotes from the Second Vatican Council. The first one is from the decree on the Church's missionary activity in the world. It's, it says, every disciple of Christ is responsible in his or her own measure for the spread of the faith. In other words, each one has a sphere of influence in which they can influence, right? Every disciple of Christ is responsible in his or her own measure for the spread of the faith. And from Vatican II's decree on the apostolate of the laity, we read this beautiful quote. Now, this document was written just for the laity, like yourself. It says, quote, "...upon all Christians rests the noble obligation of working to bring all people throughout the world to hear and accept the divine message of salvation. Upon all Christians rests the noble obligation of working to bring all people throughout the world to hear and accept the divine message of salvation. In other words, you do your part. You are not your family member's savior. Jesus is their savior. But you are your family member's prayer warrior, and you are your family member's evangelizer. It's never, ever good to amputate a relationship with anyone, relative or not. Sometimes you do have to detach with love and establish boundaries. Those can be good things, even within families, to establish boundaries. Those can be good things, but we never, ever, ever want to amputate a relationship, family member or not. Uh, only detach with love. So, for example, you when you look at your different siblings, you know how to approach each one individually and differently because each one has their own temperament, each one has their own personality. Maybe this one you could send a mass card to for their birthday, letting them know that you're having a mass said for them. Maybe another one you could send them a beautiful uh, condensed version of the lives of the saints for their Christmas gift or their birthday gift or their wedding anniversary and something to the effect written on the inside by you, the inside cover, you know, dear John, I may this condensed version of the lives of the saints greatly move you to one day return to your Catholic faith of baptism. I love you so much. Love your sister, Patricia. You know, just a little short to the point, little line or two accompanying the gift. Um, or a, just a hallmark thinking of you card. doesn't even have to be their birthday or Christmas, just a thinking of you card. Thinking of you is a category that you see in the, in the convenience stores and the drug stores. Just to send a card just because, let them know you're thinking about them. Or, or ask the parish secretary for a mass card. And just send, I'm just having a mass said for you. You've been on my mind this last week, and I thought I would do something about it. I'm having a mass said for you at the parish. I love you so much. Love your sister, Patricia. You know, something very simple, short to the point. You're planting a seed is what you're doing, Patricia. You're planting a seed. Again, you're not your, your sibling's savior. 
but you are your sibling's evangelizer, and you are your sibling's prayer warrior. And how you carry out those latter two roles as the evangelizer and the prayer warrior will be dependent upon your relationship with each sibling individually and what is the best way to approach that particular sibling. Uh, because sibling A may need to be approached differently from sibling B, and, and sibling B differently from sibling C. We all have our own little temperaments. We have, all have our, our own personality traits. That, but, but there's some consistencies here, like you never, ever, ever want to amputate. Why? Because your baptism and your confirmation and your regular reception of Holy Communion and your regular reception of confession calls you to so, so, so much more. You know, we each have a sphere of influence in which to influence, I like to say, quoting, uh, paraphrasing, I should say, Cardinal Newman, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. We all have a sphere of influence in which to influence. So hopefully that helps you out, Patricia. Thank you so much for a great and important question about what's our role to evangelize family members who no longer practice the faith. God bless you now. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Ann is in Pensacola, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Ann, you're on with Father Wade Menezes. Thank you for taking my call, Father. My question is, what does the Church think about decomposition of the body as far as, like, there, there are places that you, you send the body to and they... Um, you know, pack it in whatever, and after a couple weeks, it's decomposed, and you can take what's ever yeah. left. They said the only that's, thing that's left is tea. That's a great but, question. That's a great question, Anne. It, it's it's actually called composting of the body. That's actually what it's called. It's it's become more common to read about this phenomenon the last two years, especially. In fact, I've been keeping a record on it. Uh, it would still be considered, in that regard of composting, a type of scattering. Granted, it wouldn't be scattering over a large scale, but you're still scattering the ashes, and that's what we don't want to do. We want to inter the ashes, and with composting, uh, you know, that would not be the case. So your son was correct in that he told you there's services out there that will put your remains uh, uh, outside where they have their facility, uh, and you decompose, and then once you decompose, they ship the compost of the, of, the rema- of the dead loved one, they send the compost material back to the family for gardening. Well, that's still a type of scattering of the ashes, and uh, this would not be in the mind of the Church. So remember, the main, the main uh, word here is interred. The, the cremains in an urn have to be interred, either in the ground or above ground. And keep in mind, too... There's many cemeteries that are permitting this now where you can bury an urn with the cremains in the urn in the ground above a full-length burial body of a loved one who died priorly, uh, who's six feet or more underground in their full body. You can bury the urn four to five feet down in the ground in that same grave above the full body of the deceased loved one in their casket. So uh, many par- many uh, cemeteries are permitting that now. So it doesn't have to be an above-ground columbarium. It can be in the ground, either in its own grave, or it can be in the ground placed in place above another full-body grave. Uh, in fact, I know one situation where three urns are buried above a full-bodied casket grave 
in the same grave site as that full body casket, all three urns are placed in the ground about five to five and a half feet down. So these are different things that are permissible. Not every cemetery will permit this. It depends on that particular cemetery's guidelines or rules or bylaws or whatever. Most cemeteries have a board and what that board votes on to permit and or not permit. So you'd have to check with the local cemetery that that, that you would be looking at for your own remains. Also, uh, many parishes now are installing uh, sites of columbariums on the parish grounds. So you'll have above-ground above columbariums, these beautiful marble slabbed walls that have many niches in them. Each niche is meant to take an urn. And you see those more and more now on parish grounds. So you don't have full body burials necessarily on the parish grounds per se, although that can happen too if there's a cemetery on the parish grounds. But what I'm seeing more and more now are columbariums being built anew, brand new, on the parish ground. So there's different options out there, but what you want to do, Anne, is you want to make sure that the cremains are interred, not composted and scattered in the garden, even that would even though that would be a smaller scattering sphere versus say in the ocean or the mountains. Granted, it would be a smaller scattering sphere, but the fact that it's still scattering is a problem. Does that help you out, Anne? It does, but I have another question about scattering. A lot of non Catholics do scatter. Can you attend, you know, and I've been invited to attend different services where they, yeah. you know, go out in the the water, whatever, because we used to live on the water and, and uh, scatter the ashes. Can you? Can I attend those then? Yes, you can attend a, a, a non-Catholic's funeral, regardless of how they carry that out. In respect for the dead, you can attend uh, a, a funeral, as provided it's it's Christian in base. Uh, you can do that. I, I would not go to something that's occultic or anything like that, obviously. That goes without saying. But yes, we can, just like we can attend a Protestant wedding between two Protestants, we can attend uh, a, a funeral ma- a, a, excuse me, a, a funeral rite service of, of a Protestant. There's no problem there. Thank you, Anne, for a great question. We really appreciate it today. And very quickly, we'll head to Father Bill in Northwest Missouri, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Father Bill, just a minute and a half left with Father Wade. What's your question today? Okay, so I'm very open with my parishioners about going to confession every three to four weeks. And I'm concerned sometimes that being that open is a little scandalous because I think it suggests that sinning is okay because we have resources to the sacraments. And I just want to get your input on this. By the way, I'm also a holy apostle of the Oh, great, great, Father Bill. Thank you for your call today. We really appreciate it. I, I say publicly that in regards to frequent confession, I think priests, whether active or contemplative, diocesan or religious order, and religious consecrated brothers and sisters, nuns, active or contemplative, I believe we need to go to confession more often. So for all of us in consecrated life, including my diocesan brothers, I recommend confession every two weeks. Why? Because we are on the front lines of battle, so to speak. We're called to give the greater example. Going to confession more often doesn't mean you're sinning more. It means that you're making possibly more devotional confessions to receive more extra graces. Great question. Thank you, Father Bill. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.